This is Bit of a Tangent. My name is Gianluca, and if you're listening to this episode, you're in for a fascinating discussion about universal basic income, decentralized sovereignty, and the future prospects of humanity. For those of you who are new listeners, there are three things to know. One, I'm Gianluca, a graduate AI researcher with a penchant for self-experimentation. Two, my co-host is the polymath enigma of a medical student who calls himself Jared. And three, together we broadcast weekly discussions about everything from rationality to biohacking. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll know that the third point there is not exactly true. We've been on somewhat of a hiatus for the past two weeks. The number of you who've noticed this and sent us messages has been exceptionally motivating, so thank you for your continued support. The reason for the break is that Jared and I have been hard at work on a number of major projects, one of which is this episode. And I don't think I'll be alone in saying that it was entirely worth the wait. What follows is a discussion with Bronwyn Williams. Bronwyn is a futurist and trend analyst with a background in marketing and economics. And she's one of the people that most frequently drops nuggets of gold in my Twitter timeline. As Bronwyn points out in the episode, Universal Basic Income, or UBI, is not a new concept. It refers to a welfare system that regularly pays every citizen of some region a certain amount of cash regardless of their needs. It's a flat handout. It's not too dissimilar from the concept of negative income tax, which is widely considered to achieve the same goal, but without sending redundant checks. For the purposes of this conversation, We largely use the terms interchangeably, as they both represent the same goal of setting a floor for income via governmental regulation. This topic is especially relevant of late, as US Democratic candidate Andrew Yang is running on a platform of giving each US citizen $1,000 a month if he's elected in 2020. Moreover, prominent figures like Elon Musk have been touting the need for UBI as a safeguard against human redundancy, given the trends in automation. And, as we explore, Europe has its fair share of UBI peculiarities too. To cut through all the noise and confusion, we bring you this discussion with Bronwyn. As you'll soon hear, she brings profound clarity to the subject and offers a no-nonsense analysis in an age where most others only spout rhetoric. We discuss the history of universal basic income, how it's being sold by politicians and tech giants, and case studies like the Alaskan oil dividend. We also dig into Bronwyn's trend analyses of automation, the future of work, and how UBI might cost us our agency. Finally, we explore her model of the strata of society, and how she suspects the margins between them could fray under single-payer policies like UBI. And as a bonus, we even discuss Bronwyn's reading recommendations, so you can explore all of these ideas even further. We are very excited to bring you this episode, and we loved having Bronwyn as a guest. So if you find it informative, please share it with others who might enjoy it too. Your support means we can continue reaching out to brilliant minds and having the kinds of conversations that move us all forward. Links to everything, including our email and social media, can be found in the show notes or on podtangent.com. Without further delay, we bring you our discussion with Bronwyn Williams. Uh, 
so we're fortunate to be joined in today's discussion by Bronwyn Williams. Bronwyn is a futurist, economist, trend analyst, and strategist. She's also a partner at both FluxTrends.com and Apollo42.com. But first of all, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. Uh, so yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit more about uh, the work you do at FluxTrends and Apollo24? Okay, so at Flex Trends, I'm a trend analyst. That basically means that we help businesses unpack what's going on in the world with their consumers, with technology, with politics, economics, all the rest of it, and try and make sense of it so they can actually develop a foresight-led strategy for their businesses. And then at Apollo 42, 24, but close enough, uh, we're basically a very small boutique brand agencies dedicated to working with smaller startups to help them get their launch correct. Fantastic. All right. So, I mean, you have been talking publicly and in the in the public discourse in the futurism and trend analyst space for quite a while now. Uh, we originally connected through Twitter, where I've been following uh, articles that you've been sharing and, and your commentary on things for quite some time. And in the past, I picked up a few times when you had some critical remarks about uh, UBI uh, or universal basic income. Recently, you, you said that you, you've got a lot more to say on this, especially um, with the recent events. So that's the premise for, for today's conversation. So um, maybe it's worth giving a bit of a primer to anyone who's not familiar with the basic idea of UBI. Okay, so to start with, universal basic income is not a new idea. I mean, it's been going around pretty much since the dawn of time. It's the, it's the classic political ploy. You know, if you vote for me or put me in charge, I'll give you free money, I'll give you security, I'll give you, you know, that paycheck that you can afford to. So it's not a new idea. It probably gained a bit of prominence mid-century, last, uh, mid-last century with the likes of Martin Luther King, who were quite big proponents of it, and perhaps more credibly from an economic perspective, the Milton Friedman's of the world, who also agreed that universal basic income could be a better idea to the very messy basket of social welfare projects that are going on in most countries today. But I think it does bear pointing out that there is quite a big difference between a universal basic income and a negative income tax, such as the type that Milton Friedman proposed originally. So that's really the context of where it yes. came from, historically speaking. But what it really is, it's a free check from your government every month just for, you know, existing. Congratulations, you're alive, here's some money because you deserve it, you're great. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a really nice primer. So yeah, I think one of the, the key ideas is that, you know, UBI is very much in the sort of popular parlance on the internet now, and especially with Andrew Yang, who's the um, Democratic candidate that's running entirely on a UBI sort of one issue platform. So I think a lot of people are hearing about the term now, and it's it's brought into the, the popular conversation by figures like Elon Musk as well. And Yet there is this quite a, a significant history. And, and in an economic sense, it's, it's important to note that uh, what you brought up about the negative income tax is that, yes, UBI and negative income tax are actually quite closely related ideas. But in terms of the application, there's still great debate into which would have more pros and cons. Would you say that you are a, a critic of UBI as it's currently being proposed by many people? I would say I'm predominantly a critic of the way it's being sold to people, which is slightly different to being a critic of that idea itself. I mean, if you love right. it, you could all just sit back and get free money if that was the way the world works. But it's really being sold on two premises, the classic premises that any marketer will use, and that's the idea of fear on the one side or greed on the other side. So the fear angle is what's being pushed by people like Andrew Yang at the moment, saying... Robots are going to take all of your jobs. The only way you're going to be able to survive is if, you know, your, your kind government gives you a little bit of money at the end of the month. Otherwise, you can all look forward to a future of being unemployed and uninspired and have nothing to do in order to support yourselves. 
On the other side, you've got the more greed-based premises, which you can actually do if you want to look into it. I mean, look at what's going on in the Middle East in countries like Saudi Arabia and Dubai, where the citizens of those that lands do get paid oil dividends out of the natural resources of their, of their countries, and they get very, very rich of doing absolutely nothing, just for having to be born in the right place at the right time. So that's that's an easy sell too. If you're a politician and you can say, vote for me and I'll pay you X amount, amount of money a month, and the other guy comes along from your opposing party and says he'll pay you even more, it becomes almost like a negative or opposite of an arms race, so people just keep voting for more and more cash. And this has already happened in Alaska, which is often used as a UBI positive case study. So the Alaskan dividend is given to Alaskan citizens, and it's getting paid out of their oil reserves too, very much like what the Middle East does. And what happened was, is that when the oil price declined a bit over the last couple of years, people got quite upset because suddenly their free money check was almost half, going from over $2,000 to around about one, one, two. So it was quite a significant pay cut, and these people had obviously become quite dependent and quite accustomed to getting a free check of that particular amount. And what they found was, although the initial policy was pushed more from sort of democratic candidates, the Republican candidates in that state of Alaska just promised to reinstate the original value of the Alaskan dividend back up to the two thousand odd dollars that people were accustomed to, even though he had no way to actually pay for that. So he was voted in on the promise of increasing people's paycheck, and he was unable to deliver it because simply the value wasn't there. The oil fund didn't have that sort of a cash. But that just sort of shows how you can paint yourself into a corner quite quickly when you are playing this game of vote for the guy who's going to give me the most money. It poses a really interesting question because, you know, throughout history, politicians have always been able to make promises. And, and a lot of those promises are entirely unfeasible and aren't delivered upon. But now it seems like it's almost just summarized in the single value. And what you could imagine seeing in a UBI world is a bunch of politicians standing up on, on stage at some kind of debate in, a, in essentially a bidding war for uh, the, the highest you know, monthly UBI for the citizens of, of a country, and uh, regardless of the, the feasibility of that, right? And I think for me, this personally has been one of the biggest unaddressed issues with UBI. Though what I have heard some people suggest is that perhaps that is actually a good thing to have this sort of bidding war, because over time, you will just remove all the other projects and programs that governments are involved in, and UBI will become the entire job of any government. And that, and that will lead to a much smaller system of governance, which obviously is, is very much in line with the libertarian ideals, and potentially with the way things might go in a more global, more automated, more internet-connected future. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, I, I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen, what you just said there, in terms of, you know, people... The government's entire function will be just handing out cash and that'll make a smaller government. I think if that is the case, that would actually lead to a much bigger government very quickly because obviously the incentive for the voter is to vote for the, the biggest paycheck and that has to be extracted from somewhere. So you need quite a big extraction division from your government too or tax, tax men or to collect that sort of cash in order to redistribute it. And also if you look at at the, at the pioneering projects that have trialed UBIs in closed little systems, which are not necessarily 
good examples of what can happen in the real world, what you find is that people don't want this to replace their lovely welfare net. They want it to be added onto it. Even if you look at the pushback that Andrew Yang himself has got, he's actually offered people the alternative. They can either carry on with their current social security benefits or switch to the UBI. And a lot of people are saying they want to hang on to what they've got because they know they can milk the system and get a little bit more cash than the, that sort of pig that they want to put in the, in the sand with that particular line. I think that the way modern society is developed, particularly in the first world, welfare benefits of all sorts are a lot bigger than people think they are. And we'd have to really get people to change their minds about what governments are supposed to do before you could switch to that way of thinking. And I think the bigger, more dangerous idea is that governments originally were supposed to set up to protect life and livelihoods, so to protect person and property. And by also insisting on government's job is not just to protect, but also to support, you're giving government a much, much bigger degree of control over the individual. It's not going to reduce control, it's absolutely going to centralize control and power. Especially as those paychecks do get bigger over time, as they will, because there will be a bidding war. Politicians will always promise to increase that amount in order to stay in power. For every increase in that amount that is distributed through governments, there is a reduction in control and agency of the individual within that society, because you obviously have to give up individual control in order to get a collective safety net. I mean, you can compare this to anything from like your NHIs and NHS systems and healthcare through to through things like like universal basic income. The principles are very similar. When you've got a single payer, that single payer's got almost absolute control of what goes on in the system. And I think for me, the bigger danger is much further down the line. So say you do embark upon one of these universal basic income type programs, as I said, that's going to result in a bidding war that's going to get to people wanting to increase that, 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 that cash payment that's coming out and to increase that centralized control. But along with that, the government gets more power in order to perhaps say what people can and can't do in order to gain access to that cash. So right now, the rules with like an Andrew Yang type plan are quite simple. You just have to be a citizen of the United States over the age of 18. But what then if the government decides to start linking that to some other sort of controls to say, you know, if you litter or if you exceed your carbon quota for the year, then we're going to dock your universal basic income payment. And when it's a top up over and above your income that you're actually earning, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's almost like a bribe to be a good citizen. But as over time that basic income payment becomes a bigger and bigger chunk of people's day-to-day budgets, then that control locus becomes that much more important and can be used for more and more things. I mean, if you want to look at, at the, the, the logical end game, they just have to look across what's going on in India and China at the moment with their social credit systems. I mean, that's already in play. I mean, a universal basic income linked to China's social credit score system would just really tie up all the little loose ends in terms of centralizing government control. So I think that most people are perhaps not thinking enough about how power and money are being centralized with these sorts of plans. There's a lot of buzz in social media and the media about the outsized power and control that big corporate has. But the flip side of that is, is it any better when that locus of control is switched over onto the government side? And that then brings up the other point. The biggest proponents of universal basic income type systems are actually not coming from labor side, not coming from workers and unions, they've actually shown quite a lot of resistance to these plans, but they're actually coming from big corporations, particularly big tech, your Elon Musk, your Mark Zuckerberg's, 
your Bill Gates's, these are all the people that are really pushing for these agendas. So even if you are of a more socialist and less libertarian bent than perhaps some of your listeners might be, there's also concerns from those sides that all we're doing is that we're basically providing a band-aid, a way for big tech to continue making money from citizens, even if citizens are unable to pay for those toys and treats themselves. Hmm. It seems almost like UBI is a, I mean, it, it has the veneer of being a quite a progressive, liberal, you know, future focused program, but yet it could have this ironic twist in which it allows authoritarianism and centralized control to actually take hold. So it's a, it's a really interesting point that you make there and, and the comparisons to, to the Indian and Chinese systems, particularly with the social credit. Another, you know, major issue on this, and, and as someone who's a futurist and trend analyst, you've obviously looked a lot into uh, the sort of consequences that automation might have both in the developed and in developing nations and, and how that might all relate to employment and ideas like UBI or negative income tax. So I think Jared also had some uh, points that he might want to pick your brain on relating to automation and sort of how we future-proof our societies so that we don't all end up unemployed while vastly superior robots do our jobs. Uh, and, and I would like, actually, if you would say more about the uh, social systems in India and China, because I think that is maybe not as well known and, and discussed outside of, you know, a very small subset of people. But aside from that, do you find it actually a plausible claim that automation poses a, a danger? I mean, I think your breakdown into UBI as arising out of either fear or greed is an interesting one. But in terms of the fear one, is it plausible that automation will have this kind of effect? And if not, how do you reconcile the, the seeming emergence of machine learning techniques and, and better robotics and automation in general? Okay, to answer that question, going back to the fear angle, I think that it has been greatly overestimated. I think that we're not going to all suddenly end up being redundant and have no value to society because there's been improvements in machine learning and artificial intelligence. It's a very easy fear to play into if you are a politician, if you are a labor union, if you are anyone that wants to get money out of a worker that is scared about a world that is in change. It's, it's quite an easy sell on the fear side, but the numbers just don't add up to it. I mean, particularly when you start look at, looking at just from macro population trends and the fact that world population growth is not going as exponential as we thought it was going to go maybe 50 years ago. I mean, many experts, definitely the ones that I look at, are saying the population of the, of the world is going to top out at about 9, 10 billion, which in around about the year 2050, which means that already we're not going to be able to get growth and things like job competition and all of those factors suddenly don't become as important as it would be in a case that the world's population is just going to explode and explode forever. Some of the, the doomsayers from mid-last century once again were saying quite a lot. So we also have to look, if we want to see the future, good places to look are places like Germany and Japan, because they are a bit more advanced in terms of technology, in terms of population demographic trends, and the fact that their population growth is slowing down. What we find is that we're not having mass unemployment in those countries. Quite the opposite. We are having, in fact, an inability to find skilled workers. And indeed, that's where a lot of the automation has come out of parts of Asia and parts of Europe, where people are having to replace human workers with machines, not doing it in order to exploit the worker or increase productivity levels, but really because they're running out of alternatives. 
And that, that's the one side. So the figures are just not saying that automation is going to wipe out jobs. In fact, in the most advanced economies, automation is actually increasing the net number of jobs. And that's likely to, to play out that way throughout your and our lives. That might not be the case in sort of two, three generations, 100, 200 years down the line. But for the foreseeable future, work is not exactly disappearing. That said, always on the other hand, the nature of work is changing in the sort of roles and skills that we require in order to function in the modern improving society are going to shift. That means that there is going to be quite a lot of frictional and structural unemployment while people are looking for jobs that they don't have skills for yet, where there's that gap between what the training we're producing, the skills we have, and the sort of work and roles that are available. And that's particularly concerning in places like South Africa, where our education is definitely not up to the global par, not in terms of what we do at primary school level or at tertiary level. And those skills gaps are going to be problematic, but those are sort of short to mid-term challenges, not not you know, completely dystopian long-term issues where we've all just got to give up and, you know, because we're never going to find work. The other way to answer that question is to actually look, if we zoom out a little bit, as to, you know, humanity over all time, jobs are quite a new concept. Jobs are not equivalent to work. And work could be described as just a way for a human being to justify their value in society. So that could be even whether you're looking after your own children or whether you are a beautician or whether you are an accountant or a lawyer or whatever it is. Those are, that's just the function that you're performing in society. But if you try and decouple jobs, the idea of a salaried worker from work, I don't think we're going to run out of work anytime soon. Because even if theoretically the jobs and the functions and the industries that we currently have, even if they can all be automated, which they probably won't because there are limitations to lots of these technologies that we're looking at right now, you're still going to be left with the fact that all of us are humans and we have warm bodies and they are like almost 7 billion of us on the planet. And we are prepared to exchange value with others for services. And those services might be changing. Services might not be being a lawyer or being an accountant that you're going to pay for. But it could be as simple as going back to Japan right now, where you're finding that people are paying money for people to just come into their homes and hug them because loneliness is becoming the new need that we require some other human to help us to fulfill. We've got people looking for, like, you know, rent a husbands or rent a wife to come and just sit with you and have a conversation with you at home. And those, those are just small examples of ways that we could still be trading value with each other, even in a world where machines are doing a lot more of the current things that we understand a job to be. And of course, if you zoom back by a couple of a couple of centuries back to your sort of biblical times, the emergence of the agricultural economy, all of those jobs that people were doing fell away. They were replaced by large-scale agricultural farming, and as we went through the Industrial Revolution, those things were changed once again. And what we did in order to exchange with value from each other, between each other, changed. But we are still exchanging value between each other today. Just what we are prepared to pay for, to trade our time or our value for, that's what's shifting. So I hope that answers your question a bit. What I've seen lately is that the, the argument for why we really need UBI is because of the impending automation crisis. And, and this is, you know, not just automation in the sense we've seen up till now, where you've got sort of your dumb robot arms that can replace factory workers or, you know, uh, automated uh, calling systems or, or those kind of things. We're talking about a kind of automation that automates more creative or nuanced or intuitive tasks with the advances we're seeing in artificial intelligence and, and at the moment, machine learning. 
And so, I mean, that is the sort of the core of why many people are proposing that UBI is necessary, why it might not have made sense in the past and doesn't make sense right now, but it will make sense going forward. And I think you're presenting a view that's maybe different to others out there. So, I mean, a lot of people out there are very concerned that AI will make humans redundant. So like Elon Musk, for one, and I think a large number of his projects, such as things like Neuralink, seem to to signal that he thinks it's a, a big enough concern that maybe merging and becoming a hybrid with our sort of silicon-based intelligence systems is the only way we might survive and not become entirely redundant and replaced. But you're presenting a, a sort of different view whereby technology plays much more of a, a role as a tool and, and, and allows us to shift the things that we do and the things that we place value on as we go into the future to really separate what it is to be human from what it is to just do computation or to think or to perform work. So maybe if you paint a bit more of a, a picture of how you view a future society in 20 to 100 years from now, like what would that look like? And how do you think that then shifts the argument away from UBI? Okay, so from my perspective, we can't really predict the future. We can look at different sort of scenarios. And I don't think that we are going to all become redundant. I don't think we can. In fact, if we all did become redundant, what would we do with each other? We'd form a different way of trading to get our relative values in society back on track. And I think just to backtrack a little bit on that, as much as you've said that as we've spoken about how UBI is being sold as a band-aid, as a cure, as a preventative for the ultimate replacement of humans or the job apocalypse coming coming about because of robots and all the rest of it. I think that that is what it's being sold as, but I think that's the marketing message. I don't believe that that's really what it's being sold as. I think that's the sort of lie to children that we put over the, over the top of it. But the bigger issue that this is being sold for or that people are buying into the idea for is because there's a lot of anger across the world about inequality right now. What this really is, is it's a reaction against some people being very, very successful compared to everyone else. It's a reaction against the super rich and against the ruling class and the capitalist class, even against the capitalist system. But this is, that's the deeper sort of need that the universal basic income message is trying to fulfill. I think that we do need to talk about that because it gets to, it gets closer to the heart of what's really going on here. And that also brings us closer to the point as to why this is probably not the correct solution for us. Because assuming that even we do manage to eradicate inequality by taxing the rich so hard like your Piketty's of the world wants to do and your Andrew Yang's and your Democratic Party in the US to such a point that everyone's incomes are equalized to a point where everyone can cash in on the prosperity that is being currently developed by the very few, we're not going to solve the essential problem because money is just a proxy for our relative worth in society. It's not our actual value in society. So say we solve the income inequality challenge through your universal basic income tax program, we still have basic needs as the irrational animals that we are as human beings in order to find our place in the hierarchy. I mean, we know this with, with apes and, and cats and any sort of animal. We all kind of behave the same way. These go back to our deepest sort of core needs in society. And I think what's, it's more dangerous if we start replacing that idea of income equality with other sorts of inequality. And that brings up those questions of your things like what Elon Musk is proposing to do with the Neuralinks and all the rest of it. 
I don't think that what he's proposing is going to so much prevent us or help us to not be taken over by by robots or to be replaced by them as much as it will lead to more inequality in the longer term evolution of what it is to be a human. So that's inequality in terms of relative poverty and wealth rather than perhaps absolute poverty and wealth because we are generally much better off today than our ancestors were and are likely to continue increasing into prosperity into into the future on a global scale for quite some time to come. But I think that's quite a powerful message and it's and it's really the big reason why this idea has become so popular again. And I think any conversation about UVI without addressing that inequality elephant in the room is not going to be very productive because that's the subtext. That's what people are really thinking when they start talking about these policies. But at the same time, if we are going to look at UBI as a way to solve inequality, it's probably not going to do that. I think we mentioned a little bit earlier that some of the biggest proponents of UBI are your really big tech billionaires, your Elon Musk's, your Mark Zuckerberg's, your Bill Gates's. And there's a reason for that. I mean, if you want to follow the money, follow the money. And where's all that universal basic income going to end up, assuming the fear mongers are correct, I would argue that universal basic income is probably more likely to make that prediction, that dystopia come to pass than it is to actually solve it. Because as we extract more money from your middle class taxpayers in order to fund universal basic incomes and those sort of projects, because the middle class is going to be the hardest hit in terms of actually funding these sort of projects, as they always are, the middle class pays most of the tax across the world, even though they're not the biggest earners. A lot of that money is going to end up in the hands of, once again, your big tech companies, your Amazons, your Googles, your all the rest of it. That's And the more money we extract from the working class in order to, to fund these programs, the more is going to end up in your very, very big monopolies because that's the way it works. They're going to be the only ones that can afford to pay those sort of tax bills and that are coming up on the corporate side. And we're going to definitely see a lot more very big, massive corporate monopolies benefiting from these sort of programs. If you were to not have universal basic income, those big tech companies would probably fail a lot faster because they wouldn't be being propped up by artificially injected money into a system. Because that's the way the world works. If people can't afford your product, they stop buying it. But if you keep giving them money in order to keep cycling that cash through the big government system, we can keep those sort of dinosaurs, those those blood-sucking vampire-type companies going for a lot, lot longer. So I would put that perspective out there as probably a slightly contrarian view as to, to why the working class should be wary of such projects, and particularly the way they're being sold. Mm, that's very interesting. It's not an idea that I've uh, come across before in this debate. So yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting angle to approach it from, almost looking at ulterior motives that are potentially afoot. So yeah, interesting idea. I mean, let me, let me pose the question to you this way. So you've, you've been quite critical of UBI or, or uh, negative income taxes and have got some really good arguments for that. If the politicians and executives of the world came to you now and asked you what course of action to take, as potentially some of them have in your line of work, what is it that you would recommend? What what do you think addresses the problems that our technological society is facing now and will face in the future best? Like, what would your suggestion be for ways we could better fix our problems than UBI or NIT? 
Okay, so uh, to start with, I would say that despite everything I've just said, uh, a basic income or a negative income tax is a much more efficient way to deal with welfare costs than the current messy social welfare nets that we have across the world. All those different programs, all those different grants and services that we're giving out. In that regard, I absolutely do agree with Milton Friedman. He had, came, I think, as a very had a very similar perspective to what I have. I mean, government social welfare programs are a necessary evil. They're something that you become accustomed to, and they're very difficult to take away any toys once people become accustomed to them. But if we can replace that with a neat one-off payment, that would be a better way to do it. Unfortunately, logically, people are going to want to hang on to those other payments. It is very unlikely you're going to get a clean switch from a messy social welfare basket of services to a single payer type service like a negative income tax. And, but still, I think that the, the bigger issue is that we need to, we need to get people to understand that a government is not necessarily going to solve any of their problems and that by incorporating larger and larger welfare payments and larger and larger cycling of cash through government systems, we're actually messing with the very complex systems that are the economies and societies of the world in ways that we don't fully understand. I'll be the first to say, despite having spent many years studying economics, that economics is far from a perfect science. We simply don't know enough about what we're doing when we start putting strange, perhaps benign, perhaps perverse incentives into a, a stable type of system. We're not really sure what's going to happen there and what unintended consequences and perverse incentives will come out of these sort of systems. Like we were just discussing, a universal basic income is probably likely to actually increase inequality rather than decrease inequality, although it seems very equitable to give everyone the same amount of money funded by taxes from the rich. It's not necessarily going to achieve that. I would suggest that the best thing we need to be doing at this point in time is to actually start weaning ourselves off government. I think we have passed the point of marginal returns or marginal improvements to the size of government that we are getting. I think our governments across the world have become far too bloated and far too powerful and far too expensive. They're just simply unaffordable at the moment. I mean, when you're getting to the point that more people are employed by the state than are employed by the private sector, you've probably jumped the government shark. You're probably, you're probably not getting a, the maximum efficiency out of our, out of our work, out of our labor, out of our tax money that we're paying into these systems. So I would say the best thing that most governments could do is actually to do a whole lot less. But of course, that's a very unpopular opinion. And as we've mentioned before, with universal basic income payments or any sort of government handout, the politicians that promise more are more likely to get voted into power. And this creates a, a terrible vicious circle where you end up continually promising more and delivering slightly less, slightly less marginal returns to all that, to all that taxation that we're collecting and filtering through those systems. So I would suggest that particularly in Western markets, like the United States used to have the smallest government. I mean, that, that's what it was based on, the land of the free and the home of the brave. And now it's got one of the biggest, most bloated, most powerful governments in the world. It just shows that once you, you, you can always add something to what government does, but it's very difficult to take it away. And I think that as citizens, we should start asking ourselves the hard questions as to whether we are prepared to take a little bit of pain in the present in order to stop discounting the future. And I think this idea of discounting the future is something that politicians trade on. I mean, that's their bread and butter. It makes sense from their perspective. A politician 
works on a four or five year cycle. They've got to get into power and then you get elected again. So you make short term promises and you've got very little incentive to do long term good. And we can see this through everything from like what's going on with the climate change debates at the moment. We discount the future. We push our problems to the future. We don't want to cut back on our plastic consumption or our carbon consumption now. This is uncomfortable. It will involve a reduction in our living standards. So we say, don't worry. We'll worry about that next year. You know, we'll worry. The next generation can clean up that mess. And it's the same thing with any sort of financial policy that basically borrows from future generations in order to make our lives a little bit more comfortable today. And we've become very spoiled, and we see this through generational conflicts too. I mean, you just go go onto social media today and you, you'll find many, many, many millions of millennials all over the world blaming their baby boomer parents for the mess the world is in today. But if you, you sort of rewind 50 years those same baby boomer parents were the hippies of the 1960s and 70s who were blaming their parents for the mess the world was in. And until we start to take responsibility for our own generations in our own time, until we start to realize that, you know, increasing our welfare payments payments today is going to result in an increase in taxation and real costs for our children or our grandchildren, depending on how far we can kick that can down the road before we have a, a Venezuela moment, because, you know, that's coming to anyone. None of our societies or, or economies are going to last forever. Then we're not going to really be able to, to reverse this sort of a trend. And for me, it's quite a worrying trend because along with all the, the free stuff that we want and we vote for and we get today, we do cede control and agency, and we probably need to be quite wary about ceding too much control to all powerful governments, particularly in times when technology is becoming more powerful. So I would say technology is probably a bigger threat in terms of the concentration of power than it is in terms of the concentration of wealth into the hands of robot-owning mega corporations. But I know that might be not everyone's take on the on current situations but you know this is this is you've invited me to give my views so i might as well give you some of the more controversial ones yeah well that's that's what we love to hear yeah it's, it's exactly it i think something that jean Luca and i have spoken about a lot is this idea of economic market failures and, and when we fail to be adequately either match markets or somehow have inefficiencies and so something that you said there you know there's there's this problem we have as a society with valuing the long-term future, right? We discount things going forward irrationally so, right? And there's a sort of related set of problems where we have a lot of trouble valuing things that do actually provide some value to people on an individual level, but we have no good way of you know assigning a sort of monetary value to that. So do you not see some sort of, it could be any economic system, but maybe a UBI, or maybe uh, there's the, the concept of sort of time banking, which is related here, where you can sort of incentivize and compensate people for all of the things which we do, which we don't currently uh, sort of remunerate people for, like childcare or child rearing or caring for a sick relative or you know just doing someone a favor. There's sort of the set of activities which take people's time and we even maybe want to do them without having to invoke some sort of monetary transaction because we feel good about it. But is is this a case where we are being inefficient in some sense? We're, we're missing some, some low-hanging fruit. 
Okay, well, to start back with, because this is a UBI conversation, if you talk about the sort of positive externalities, those things that people do that are nice, that are beneficial for society, we don't directly pay them for, um, it's not really going to fix that because universal basic income is a floor, not a ceiling, and it's not going to make a teacher proportionally richer compared to a lawyer which is basically what you're kind of getting at, or, or it's not going to make the stay-at-home mother proportionally wealthier compared to her compatriot woman who works in a high-powered corporate finance job, for example. It's going to, the, 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 the ranking or the hierarchy in society will stay the same with the proposals such as UBI, which is also why a lot of your more progressive socialist type political leaning people also disagree with the system because they think that what's the point of giving more money to someone that's already rich, for example. So, so that's on the one side. On the other side, when you start talking about things that are good for society that we don't value, I think that in a lot of ways we do value them in different ways that to what is easy to, to measure and to metricize, if you want to put it that way. So we're talking about being like a stay-at-home mother. In a traditional nuclear family, that stay-at-home mother in a community or property arrangement owns half of her husband's wealth. So in effect, you know, she is earning that money. Just because she doesn't have her own paycheck doesn't mean that she's not sharing in the value of that particular home. And I understand that's also a slightly controversial thing to say, but since I am a married woman and a mother, I think I have a bit of a right to comment on those sort of situations. And I think there's also a choice there. There's a very big difference to having to stay home and look after your children because you live in a repressive society that says women are not allowed to work or earn income. And it's quite a different thing when a woman is choosing to stay home because her husband can afford to keep her there and keep money in her credit card. So I do think we need to sort of draw those sort of distinctions when we have these sort of conversations, which the gender conversation is quite a big one at the moment. But at the same time, there's lots of nice things or lots of, you know, socially good professions that are paid less well than what we had considered to be socially bad professions. But that is more of an indictment on us as consumers and citizens than it is on the so-called capitalist system. Is it a lawyer's fault that you're prepared to pay him more money than you're prepared to pay your, your child's primary school teacher? And those sort of questions really come back to individual agency. If we are going to insist on acting like children as adults, then we are going to have to expect and accept more paternalistic policies like universal basic income. Because universal basic income really is a paternalistic program. It's saying you might be a grown-up, but you are completely incapable of looking after yourself. So let the, let the nanny state take care of you because it's the only way you're going to survive. And for me, that's very depressing. I mean, we are highly evolved beings. We should be able to have more agency and, and more say over our lives. Another point on that regard is that a lot of those socially good professions that are traditionally underpaid compared to your more capitalist professions, I would say a lot of the answer is right there in that exact distinction. Remember, every time a government subsidizes a sort of program, and they tend to subsidize the social goods, like your health care and your education, all the rest of it, they are artificially changing the price of that service in a way that is not determined then by market need and by the value that you and I would necessarily place on that service. Single-payer systems do pervert the way the market works. They do pervert our sense of value. Because when your government is providing free healthcare, like the case is in the, in the UK, 
you have no incentive to pay extra for that service to increase the wages of a nurse because you now believe you are entitled to free healthcare. So your value of healthcare is just reduced. Whereas in a much more capitalist society or society where there is no sort of social healthcare safety net, suddenly you will have you will have a much better indication of what that value of that healthcare really is because that's the value that you are prepared to pay in order to save your life. So do you think something like the US healthcare system actually represents a more accurate valuation of what things in healthcare should cost? Not necessarily what they should cost, but what people are prepared to pay for them because that's that's how much people value them. That's what a price is. If you get to choose whether to pay for something or not, in a free market, then the price you pay is the price that you believe it's worth to you. If it's too expensive, it's not worth it to you. If it's if it's cheap, you take more of it, and then obviously the price can rise. But when you start putting single-payer blocks inside it, you lose touch with what that value really is. And it's very difficult to then retrospectively say, oh, it was it was worth this, so it might be that worth that today. We just have to be aware that the more the more we mess around with a complex system, the less we are able to predict it or to value it because we lose touch with the, those natural market levels that help us to, to value things in systems. All right. It sounds like you're advocating in some way for a, a much more ubiquitous application of efficient free markets. And I think healthcare is, is, is a bit of an issue currently with that because there's so much... Uh, it, it's quite opaque um, in terms of why things cost what they do and how the whole thing is run. And there's a lot of regulation around. It, and I think that makes pricing things efficiently quite, quite difficult. I think healthcare, the bigger issue with healthcare is the ethics that come with it. We believe that everyone has a right to life. But what we forget is that uh, the doctors and nurses that actually provide healthcare should not be expected to provide their services for free. But when we start saying that everyone should have a right to the premium healthcare going on, that's essentially what we say. So we're really confusing ourselves. So in the back of our mind, we think healthcare is ultimately valuable, but on the other hand, we're thinking it should be free. And it's very hard to reconcile those two things when people's physical labor is involved with doing performing surgeries and, and treating and caring for patients. But on that, on that regard, if you want to go into a little bit more detail there, if you start looking at the, the biggest costs in healthcare, is very much on the drug side. And the reason drugs are so high is actually because of the way we've tried to protect intellectual property, ironically, through the patent system. Patent system is very similar to, it's a very similar perverting effect on the price of goods because the consumer is not able to pay what they believed to be the fair value, the fair value is set arbitrarily essentially by a monopoly of one, whoever holds that particular patent. And that is a very big reason why healthcare costs are so expensive. So if you want to reduce healthcare, I would say the first thing you do is just get rid of patents on the drug market. And, <laughs> you know, that, that, that was also quite a controversial statement that people then say, why would you create drugs if you couldn't make your mega millions through the patent system? But, you know, we managed to have competition in other markets and the market still works. So, you know, I'd say that's probably worth a shot there. <laughs> on, on the idea of patents there, the patent system in its purest form, right, exists to incentivize this costly development process. You know, it's difficult to find a molecule that works and that costs a couple billion to get the clinical trial through. And so we essentially you know, make this long-term trade where we say, well, do that research and we'll pay you by the exclusive right to sell it. But as you point out, we're not pricing that correctly. We're somehow overpaying for it over a longer timescale than we intended to. So what I've heard proposed that might uh, fix that is this idea of almost making it like a competition 
where there's a guaranteed cash prize for being the first person to say, um, come up with a new leukemia drug and, um, we guarantee you this hundred million or couple billion, however much you need to price it at. But then at least it means that we can immediately start making generics. So you pass on the cost savings immediately. That's really cool. It's kind of like a Kaggle competition, but for pharmaceuticals, right? It's a market, but there's, there's so many ways you can spin that. I mean, you could have, I mean, like we've got crowdfunding systems now, you know, like cancer patients could band together to fund a particular research of a particular strain of the illness that they want to compete with. I just think we probably need to look at different ways. The patent system was set up back in the sort of industrial era. So maybe we need to look at different ways of protecting intellectual property that don't result in monopolies of one or in extreme inequalities of concentration of the, the, the worth of those sorts of, sorts of ideas that can be basically run by the sort of lawyers and governments of the world. So that's just sort of one example of how when you start talking about things that are badly valued, when you look a little bit closer, most of them are badly valued because of unintended consequences of well-intentioned policies that have been written into law and applied, and then we're having to apply different policies or try try fix the inefficiencies that come on board from the policies. So I guess my point is that the policy is a dangerous game because markets and societies are so complicated. Most of the time when we think we're doing good, we actually end up doing more harm. It's the same thing with like, you know, introducing birds to catch mosquitoes in a particular country and then having to bring in foxes to kill the birds and then having then you know having to replant foliage because now the She swallowed the spider to catch the fly kind of scenario. And I think I think that there's a lot of that going on in many of the inefficiencies in the markets. I'm not a great expert. I can't tell you how to fix all of these things. But I do think that coming back to universal basic income and concepts like this, we, we are applying, we tend to, we're attracted to what seems to be a simple solution to a problem like gaping inequality or increasing living costs or rising the machines and robots. We don't necessarily think that the band-aid is probably not the best cure for the underlying issue. An underlying issue probably the universal basic income side is very much, like I said, this discontent with inequality. But beneath that, there's also a lack of appreciation of the fact that life is a lot better for us than for us of our ancestors. If you don't believe me, I mean, you can do that whole, that lottery of life experiment, which I think is always good to do. Whereas if you say to yourself or to any of your listeners today, if you could pick any year in the history of humanity to be born in, but you did not get to pick where in the world or what socioeconomic bracket you were born into, which year would you pick? And you would have to be a highly risky risk taker to pick anything other than right now as your birth year because the odds of living a good life anywhere today are much better than they have been throughout the course of history. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of the point that uh, Steven Pinker makes in uh, Better Angels of Our Nature quite quite extensively. But yeah, I mean, for a starter, we don't, half of us died during childbirth. So that's uh, already already quite a great start in, in the modern world. And uh, yeah, we've got so many other advancements that we've made and, and so many more opportunities. So it's, it's a, a really great thought experiment to do. It's, it sounds like from a lot of what you're saying that our approach to addressing the problems in the modern world still relies heavily on policy being handed down from these slow, antiquated governing bodies. Whereas what we seem to need 
is something with a tighter feedback loop, right? So like a, an efficient market has a very tight feedback loop. There's almost no slack in the system because it will immediately be eaten up by people looking to profit off the system by going long or short on whatever the thing of value is. And it seems like technology offers a lot of ways in which we might tighten the feedback loops and allow us to really sort of experiment with new ways of organizing ourselves as a global collective of individuals with high agency. So I don't know what sort of technologies you think might lend into that or if I'm totally on the, the wrong train of thought here. Yeah, well, just, just on the whole technology side, absolutely. We can tighten feedback loops. We don't have these very long lags in the system. We can make better, smarter decisions and not such sort of reactionary decisions. For like universal best income for me is very reactionary. It's saying, ah, oh, help us. We don't know what we're doing, but it's not actually solving any of the underlying structural issues. So yes, if we can tighten feedback loops, that's a great thing. When it comes to harnessing technology for that, I mean, like I like to say that I'm a technology optimist, but a human pessimist. Because it all depends on what you do with the, with the tools. And we've got some really great tools at the moment, but those tools are very powerful and they are very scary in cynical and or benevolent hands, which is what we can see. I think we were speaking earlier about what's going on in, in, in China and India with their, with their social credit score systems. They've got, they've both got social credit score systems. They're both using them slightly differently, but they're both using them in a highly dystopian manner. And what that sort of illustrates is the technology Technology can automate pretty much anything. It can automate efficiency, it can automate inefficiency, it can automate good ends, or it can automate rather malevolent ends. So like what India is doing at the moment is they're trying to crack down on their minority um, religious and ethnic groups. They started building a system which they call the Aadhaar system, which is basically like a it's, it's almost like a social security number equivalent to what the U.S. has, but it's required in order to receive any grants from the government or to pay any taxes. In. So, you know, it could be used for a universal basic income type system very easily. But now that they've digitized all their population, they've also digitized a lot of other data that makes it easier to then find and track down people that the government doesn't want around and can actually, is actually starting to now strip people of their citizenship if they don't belong to the right sort of religious or ethnic group, which is not very nice. On the Chinese side, too, with their social credit score systems, I mean, these systems are such a, a wide niche. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to escape from. It's the sort of things that, you know, your Lenins and Stalins and Hitlers of the world could have only dreamed of. It's, it's the power that they actually have to do these things, to automate these things, and to extract the inefficiencies from those systems, which goes to show that totalitarian systems can succeed if the loops are closed and if everything is entirely automated. Like in the Chinese system, you can't leave the country. You don't have an identity if you don't, if you aren't part of those systems. It's still in the beta testing phase, but the nets are tightening every day. And already your score is not good enough. And the score is made up of all the data points you put out through your digital life and your physical life because they use facial recognition and gait recognition and voice recognition databases to close in those data gaps. And they limit your access to where you can work, who you can marry, where your kids can go to school, where you're allowed to live, whether you're allowed to get on a train or not, and most definitely you're allowed to leave the country or not. So that really does limit or automate that sort of process. So that's an example of an entirely managed economy and society that can work now thanks to technology. This was not possible in your totalitarian states of mid-last century. It is possible now thanks to technology. So hopefully we as individuals can put our hands up to say we don't actually want to be part of that sort of entirely managed society because all that does really turns humans into the very robots we're supposed to be afraid of replacing us in our job and our place of work. 
maybe we should be looking at the more libertarian type technologies, like you're saying, your cryptocurrencies and your self-sovereign identities, and using technologies as a way to claw back a bit more individuality and actually to put a bit a bit less clarity and information into the system because I'm actually doing a lot of thinking at the moment about the, the benefits of imperfect information, the benefits of inefficiencies in systems, and how inefficiencies are actually where advantages are made. Inefficiencies are how you go from being a poor rural farmer somewhere in the Eastern Cape in South Africa to becoming a world leader on the world stage. It's an inefficiency in the system. It's not something that should happen in a perfectly ordered and organized society. Those sort of massive leaps are not going to be able to happen in an entirely planned economy or an entirely equalized society. And I think that a lot of our agency does rely in the gray areas and the secrets from the systems rather than from perfect flow of perfect information. Because perfect flow of perfect information actually becomes quite scary. I mean, I was at a, at a marketing conference earlier this week and there was a gentleman speaking there from one of the world's largest credit bureaus. And he's no longer just a credit bureau. He's now looking to sell his information to pretty much anyone, you know. And this information is being used to determine whether people are entitled to get life insurance or not, all based on sort of automated inferences that big data algorithms are able to process. And it just got me thinking that as that information becomes more perfect, it's going to get to the point where the people that are most in need of medical insurance and health insurance will never be able to get it because the actuarial models will already know in advance that they're not going to be a good risk. So the price of paying for your insurance will actually be more than the price of paying for your foreseeing medical expenses that are going to come around. So that's just another example of how perhaps if we do want to have a little bit more freedom and flexibility and agency in our lives, maybe we shouldn't be relying on automating everything. And maybe we need to be comfortable with a bit of gray areas and a bit of imperfect information. I think something that um, I'm going to take away from this this conversation, particularly the view that I come away with from what you said, is just that, as you say, markets are these extremely complicated systems that no single human could design by hand or understand. And when we mess with them, we do so at our peril, I think is, is the key point. Let's say we were, right? If we just do the thought experiment, we actually put UBI in place, right? And I mean, this is definitely an idea which is attractive, you know, for all the reasons that you've said and, and several that we haven't touched on. But as you point out, we wouldn't be able to roll it back very easily, right? Because there's not going to be any successful political candidate who's going to run on the platform of, oh, that money you're getting, I'm going to decrease it. It's kind of this one-way door where, you know, we could try this out as a society and, and maybe it is worth trying to run the test somewhere, but maybe it is actually worth keeping in mind that, it is kind of a one-way hash function because once we do it, undoing it becomes much more difficult, you know, in the same way that, you know, trying to undo our current sort of welfare system, even if that was um, desirable, wouldn't be very feasible because a lot of people would be opposed to it. Exactly. It's like the taxation system. I mean, just after, I think it was only in the, the, 19, the 1900s that the United States started implementing income tax I and mean, they never had that before but tax rates only really go one way and that's up we know this like that doesn't go down <laughs> when when the government runs out of bit of money it goes up you know it always goes up so and with every with every increase in taxation and with every increase in welfare payments the state becomes a little bit more powerful and the individual becomes a little bit less powerful and becomes more and more difficult for that individual to claw back any of their individual agency and i suppose 
just following that line of thought a little bit deeper, if we do start voting for things like universal basic income, we do choose to go down that road, I think that we're going to see quite a lot more of a crackdown on your cryptocurrency type payments because those sort of systems are absolutely not sustainable unless absolutely everyone is pooling all of their cash into the system. And it's fundamentally incompatible for the majority of your country wants a, a basic income and wants an increase in their basic income and your, your wealthy are trying to scroll their cash away into cryptocurrencies or offshore accounts, there's a very big conflict there and those governments will have to crack down on those escapes of, of funds, will have to crack down on free trade and free flows of money in order to fund these systems. And following on that thought a little bit more, you've got the idea that if one com country starts instituting a universal basic income, it, that obviously becomes the most attractive immigration destination, right? So, I mean, surely you want to live in the place that's going to pay the, the largest dividend for, for simply being alive. So you end up with this, this additional conflict in terms of migration. And you get into the social issues of having a, a disproportionate sort of flow of feet into one direction rather than another. So I think that's also worth bearing in mind that a lot of the trials that have been done on these things have been done on a very small scale. So they've been done on a closed group of people who still had the benefit of open trades. They might go to a community in, there was case studies, I think it was, in Namibia and in Kenya, where they gave certain people universal basic income. And of course that worked because those people were then able to spend that money on the wider community, but they didn't have to fund it themselves either. You know, so they were able to benefit, they were able to benefit twice. They were able to benefit from getting it, but they weren't then also having to pay the price of funding it. And I think we tend to forget about those things too. So if the whole world was on a universal basic income, it would be very, it'd be quite, quite a depressing amount of money each of us would get out of it. <laughs> so, well, it's also quite interesting way to look at it in terms of closed and open systems. I mean, just on that point, uh, the, I think it was Yuval Noah Harari who made the point that, you know, when we say the word universal basic income, the, the, no one is really questioning the basic or the income part so much as the universal part. You know, is, does universal mean everyone in the country? Does that mean we are beholden to, you know, every other nation on the continent and, you know, indeed everyone in the world? And as you say, when you introduce that sort of artificial differential in, in essentially the price of living, you know, you will, you will create incentive for people to move and essentially vote with their feet. Yeah. So we do need to also think about those sort of wider systemic ripple effects into into society and at large, a global, how that will affect global inequality. Will it increase it or will it decrease it? How it will affect migration? How it will affect, you know, even just, even even your climate issues again, if, 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 it's a, if it's a nice, attractive destination, whether it's not from a climate point of view. So I think there's a lot of ripple effects that come across from this. And as you said, I do think that when you start going down this road, it's very difficult to back out and it's more likely to spread than it is to stop. So if one or two countries go down that road, it's more likely that more and more will follow. And then how does that affect something like the EU? So if the EU was to institute something like this, would it be on a country basis or would it be on like the whole European Union basis? And when do you draw the line? And then what does that do in the context of your immigration problems that, uh, that the EU are facing, right? Because that just becomes an even more charged issue when suddenly people get free money or don't. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's, that's another, that's an ugly side of human nature, but it is a reality. And if you don't, if you're not aware of these things, it's, it's, it's not helpful if we, if we ignore inconvenient truths. 
that um, Switzerland had a referendum a couple of years ago on actually instituting universal basic income, and they were see- they were seen as being a, a prime candidate for it because welfare type projects tend to work best in very homogenous societies with low income inequality because no one feels that they're sort of dragging along and someone else is not pulling their weight. But that vote was actually overturned. It was overturned, I think it was 7 to, to 2. I think it was less than 23% of people that actually voted for it. And most of them would have been young people too, <laughs> or most sort of exit yeah. polls that they did. And a lot of the people who rejected it, rejected it for very much the same reasons that your Brexiteers have rejected Britain, or Britain's rejected the European Union. It's very much a case of we don't want to have to support immigrants coming into our country, which is an ugly thing to say. But I think if we're not cognizant of the fact that these are the conversations people are having behind their closed doors, I don't think you can have productive conversations of what could be done instead. And that brings up the conversation of instead of, you know, sending aid to people who are doing badly in your society or sending aid to or, or bringing immigrants into your country or bringing them into your sort of fold, surely we should be doing more to sort of prop up the economies that people are escaping from. Isn't that really the, the goal? The goal is not to really get as many Africans as possible into Europe. It's rather to say, why are Africans leaving Africa? Or why are Middle Eastern people leaving the Middle East? Those are, so it's sort of like we're solving the wrong problems. We're not necessarily solving the bigger problems. We're just continually slapping these band-aids on because they, they seem quick and easy and efficient to do. Yeah, dodging dodging the potholes in, in some sense. And yes, I think also if you looked at like that uh, European Union example, you then have to face all the gritty uh, practical problems as well. I mean, like getting X number of euros every month gives you a lot different buying power in a more like sort of Eastern Bloc country member of the EU than it does in, say, Austria. Even even in the US, right? I mean, like living standards in the Midwest are hardly the same as in San Francisco. So, I mean, <laughs> how, do you, how do you even differentiate that? And what happens to Alaska if America goes ahead with theirs? They're already getting their oil dividend. Does this go over and above? Or do they have to yeah. like pull their oil dividend into the rest of the country? Yeah. They've already got this unfair natural resource and now they're getting equal payout to everyone else as well and the people sitting in san francisco can only afford to pay for their monthly coffee yeah exactly. <laughs> that's the problem with equality dishing it out is very not equal there's no way to to make the process of equalizing society an equal process so it's also a very interesting conversation to have yeah, and with all of these things that are happening at a government or administrative policy level, that same issue of the feedback loops comes into play. I mean, it seems like for the most part, government policy is much more based on wild speculation, you know, public opinion and emotion than it is on the things that make technology really good, you know, like a hypothesis testing scientific approach. And and it seems that like maybe with technology and with people being born into the technological way of thinking especially you know in the modern world with the internet there might be a significant shift towards evidence-based experimental approaches to public programs as opposed to just four or five year election cycle top down let's just implement it and then patch it later approach um so i think yeah that's it's another way in which technology as a philosophical approach can actually help address many of the issues we're facing yeah, we can only hope so, right? But I mean, the, the, the incentives, we've got to remember, the incentive of a politician is very different to the incentive of the voter. 
The voter is obviously voting for their own issues or their own problems that they have, but the incentive for a politician is to get elected, and that means the incentive is to make the biggest, grandest promises, to make the most noise, and the incentive is not to fulfill them. In fact, if you look at sort of political psychology, the incentive is not to fulfill them. The incentive is to make sure your your successor inherits the biggest mess possible because that gives you the best chance of being re-elected <laughs> in the next cycle. I mean, it's very perverse. Our entire democracy, sort of the way we've set up, the way we elect our politicians so we pay them, is definitely not in the best interests of the voter. It's definitely pandas to, to big promises and very low delivery. And unfortunately, this is why we're seeing democracy in crisis around the West. It's not because democracy is not a good idea. It's rather that any particular democratic institution seems to have a finite lifespan and then you have to sort of like burn it all to the ground and start again because the system becomes too bloated and because the, the crony capitalism, which always creeps in any sort of democracy, whether you're looking at America or South Africa or anywhere in the world, it's really all the same. Some of them are just better at lying than others. But it gets to a point where it gets too clogged in the system. And the only way to fix it is to is to tear it all down, which no one really wants to do. I mean, who wants to who wants to deal with that sort of mess? Yeah, there's a there's a, a lot in play there. Uh Jared, I don't know if you have any more sort of uh, lines of conversation that you wanna explore. If so, then take it away. Um, I was actually going to just ask uh, how we're all doing for time and then see if we want to um, sort of wrap this up with a few sort of bonus questions. Otherwise, Bronwyn, I know you have uh, all the talking points that you want to get through. So, oh, I, think, I think we've covered most of the things there. I think there's one other idea that I had written down that I just wanted to sort of bring up. I think we've spoken yeah, quite a lot about the way yeah, that any sort of um, welfare program does is is scaled to grow over time and it is also scaled to cede more power to your to your central authorities, to your central beneficiaries, whether it's the big government or the big companies that will benefit from the trade that these sort of programs will end up funding. But there's also a concept that I've been thinking about quite a lot through our work, and this is this concept of what is inequality and how do societies work? And are we necessarily looking at that in the right way? I mean, previously, your sort of fragile middle class who these policies are designed to prop up was very much defined by what people owned, like your white goods and your cars and your garage, etc., and what people earned, you know, your paycheck. And that's problematic for a few reasons because what you earn doesn't necessarily mean that you are financially stable. I mean, in South Africa, they're talking about the people in the what are they called? The affluent class. That's people who net over 75,000 rand a month. Most of them are not even getting through the month on their cash. So it's not about what you earn. It's about how you're actually able to sustain yourself through unforeseen circumstances. And in terms of what you own too, that's also changing. I mean, we don't own so much stuff anymore. We share things. We use technology to get around through our cars and to share houses and workspaces, etc. So maybe our definitions of what makes someone middle class or or wealthy or working class or the proletariat to use your sort of Marxist terminology, maybe those ideas need to be rethought a little bit so we can start to redesign a society that is more really equitable or at least more hopeful in terms of your ability to move through the different ranks of society. So the idea that I've been playing around with is that maybe we need to stop talking about people in terms of sort of like, you know, you're, you're privileged and you're in your middle class and all the rest of it, and stop talking about rather distinguishing our sort of structure of society between those who are independent, that is able to live off assets or wealth that they've accumulated without having to trade their time, then you've got the sort of codependent class, which would be the working class, which would be anyone that has to 
has to actually get up in the morning and sell their time, their expertise, or trade a good or service in order to earn more money because they simply don't have enough cash or assets in the bank to live off for the rest of their lives. But it'd be like you and I, it could be an entrepreneur, it could be an executive working in a very big big company right down to the guy that works in the garden or the tea lady or a nurse or a teacher or a freelancer. I think we're all very much in the same boat if we still having if we are codependent on each other for survival. And then you've got of course the bottom of the tier, the dependent class, the people that are unable to actually fend for themselves even through trade. These are the people that are either either because they're small children who are, you know, dependent on their parents or because they are simply unable to find a job and they end up living off grants or the charity of others. And I think that policies like your universal basic incomes and the increasing of the welfare state have quite a high risk of pushing more people in the fragile, sort of precarious, codependent class into the dependent class. Because it's like dear of marginal fray in, in any sort of society that's set like a bar or set a ceiling like your UBI. They're going to be winners and losers. They're going to be people that are net better off and people that are net worse off in, because of the, the increased taxation they'll have to pay in order to support those sort of systems. And at the fringes, there's always a few people, as you increase the price of what, or, or the cost of that particular handout, it will end up falling from one category into the other. And those that sort of fringe, that fray between the two sections will start off very slowly. The very few people that end up losing their jobs because the employer can't afford to have two people working for them anymore, only one, which is going to increase his taxation. There's a few people who will sort of drop down to that dependent class. There's a few people whose salaries would be so low, it's not even worth going to work. They should rather just cash in their welfare check. It's not actually worth their effort of earning a little bit more on top of that. And those, those phrase start off very small, but as you start increasing those payments, which you get to an exponential effect, because as more people drop off into the dependent recipient bracket, the pressure on those that are still in the paying bracket increases by that little bit more, and those little bit more people fall down. And those sort of systems accelerate to the point that you have a lot more people that are dependent on the state for their, or on society at large, for, for their very livelihood. Not dependent for a nice extra bonus check, which is what is being sold at the moment, but dependent on that grant for their livelihood. And when you start reaching a tipping point there, you get to a point where you really do have the tyranny of the majority, where the dependent class has more political clout than the people that are actually paying for the system. And in a democracy, that's a very dangerous idea. You don't want a democracy where more people who are essentially beneficiaries of the state are voting the people that are actually supporting the state. Because that can either end in a horrible sort of revolution type scenario, or it can end up with the, with more and more of your funders of the system actually leaving your country and moving to somewhere else, which just puts more pressure on the system and sort of accelerates that fray between those who are contributing and those who are net recipients of the system. So I think that, that's definitely not something that's going to happen straight away if you start off with like Andrew Yang wants $1,000 a month, but it's something that you have to be cognizant of because these things, once the ball starts rolling, you can't really stop it before you end up in a in quite a big crash. Mm, yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting um, model you've put forward there. Um, definitely a lot of food for thought, especially with regards to those fraying edges between the different classes or strata. Yeah, maybe if we just want to bring this uh, whole arc to a, a close here, Bronwyn. And it sounds like a big theme in this whole conversation has been taking power 
from this centralized governance structure, whether that's big business, whether that's traditional governments, and not just power, but agency, and decentralizing that largely through technological advances and by individuals reclaiming that agency. And given the potential threats of automation, given the fact that there's a lot of information flow that can be hard for people to wrap their heads around, what do you recommend to individuals, to maybe listeners of this podcast, as ways they can take back their agency and distribute their agency? Or maybe even just, sorry, to add in there, uh, just to go with what you were saying, Bronwyn, how to become more and more in that independent class that you mentioned. Exactly. I think the, the first thing is for people to actually decide that they do want to be independent and they do want to have agency. And I think that as we move to a world where more and more of our traditional roles and tasks and jobs, not work, not value, are going to be automated away, I think that individual agency is going to become a much more important part of our sense of worth as individuals. Otherwise, it's very depressing to be, you know, you've grown up on, on planet Earth and you end up just being a sort of dependent on a handout from a sort of a vague bureaucracy that's going to, going to really feed you for the rest of your life. That's quite a depressing future to look forward to. And I think people need to think carefully about that and to think that they actually want to be independent. You actually want to have some sort of agency over the choices that are going to define your life. And the next step is to, is to get educated as to what the implications of the nice things are. I think it's also a great wake-up call to start really realizing that there's no such thing as a free lunch, that everything comes with a cost. And that a lot of these policies might be very exciting and might be net beneficial, but at the same time, these policies do have a cost. And the price not be, might not be immediately apparent, but it is definitely there. There's definitely going to be a paycheck and a, and a, and a trade-off for any sort of thing that looks really good and shiny on the surface. So I would really encourage people to educate themselves more and to make commitments to deciding that they actually do know more about their own lives than perhaps some elected government official does about what's best for you going forward. Awesome. That's uh, a really great message there. Thank you for that. So maybe, Bronwyn, I've been reading a little bit on uh, your website, whatthefuturenow.com, and I see you have a section where you've got some of the books that you've been reading. So maybe just to wrap this up, you can give our listeners a couple of recommendations. What have you been reading recently that's been captivating your thoughts? Oh, wow. Where do I start? I do, I do read quite a lot. I haven't updated the website for quite a long time. But um, I found Hannah Arden's The Origins of Totalitarianism very fascinating. So I would definitely give that a read. It's quite a commitment. It'll, it, it took me a couple of weeks, which was extraordinarily long for me. But it's a fascinating account of the sort of mob mentalities that saw the rise of communism and fascism in the lead up to the Second World War, written by a Jewish woman who did live through it. So she did have a first-hand sort of insight as to what was going on there. And it, it was just really interesting to see how a lot of those sort of really bad things that happened to humanity last century were a result of people looking for quick fixes to quite deep systemic problems. So I think that's probably why I would recommend it to people who had listened to, to this particular podcast. And then, of course, I'm always interested in the whole behavioral economics sort of side of things. So if you want to read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, that will help you to get out of your sort of thought traps that a lot of us get into, those heuristics that short-circuit short our brains. 
that one I read quite a while ago. I think it's buried quite deep on the archives there. But it's definitely worth reading, and I'll set it out there as a challenge because it's supposed to be one of the most bought but least read books in the world and everyone says right up there with war and peace (laughs) but i totally disagree i think it's actually very readable it's actually a lot easier to get through than the origins of totalitarianism those those are two of the bigger books that i think have shaped a lot of this conversation yeah i did see actually um you'd read i think it's called surveillance capitalism or the, the age of surveillance capitalism shoshana's book yes that that that's also quite a big book I don't know if I'd recommend it to everyone. My problem with her book is that she has focused almost entirely on corporate surveillance and she has completely glossed over the much bigger net that's currently being built globally in terms of state surveillance. So I think if you're going to get through sort of 600 odd pages, you need, you should rather be looking for something that's going to give you the full picture of what's going on because to have the conversation about one or the other doesn't make a lot of sense. Her recommendations as an academic, not a technologist per se, but as a sort of philosopher academic, are that the best way to deal with big technology is to regulate it, to basically cede all that power to the state, which I disagree with quite strongly. That said, the book itself does give a very detailed overview of the the logical implications, the logical ends of allowing very big tech monopolies to monopolize data collection over people just because of the sort of power that gives you over, over decision-making and also how it does really end up with ceding a lot of power to very few players in the technological landscape. So it does give you a good overview, but not necessarily one that I'd look at. I would suggest instead of that, for people that don't have time to wade through that much academia, um, Death of the Gods by Carl Miller. That's quite an easy read too, but it's absolutely fascinating. He just takes you on a ride through a lot of the different issues that are being driven by technology and society today. Some interesting things that you might not have thought of, including sort of new governance models going on in Eastern Europe all the way through to, you know, dark web trading of, of, of on on hits for people <laughs> in the mob for example but <laughs> yes, it's very yeah. readable and it's def- i would definitely recommend that as a, as a fun read particularly if you've got a plane ride to get to somewhere amazing um one last question for you bronwyn so you are this person whose interests seem to span so many different areas and you know having now had this conversation and seeing how you view the state and society. Obviously, you're a little bit, I think, off the beaten track for most people who think about the future or think about economics. So what I wanted to ask is what idea, book, person, or whatever really sort of most influenced your current way of thinking or or even just how you ended up now in this role that you currently have? Oh, wow, that's quite a hard question. I, I, I know my thoughts are definitely not everyone's cup of tea, so I don't make any claims for you to agree with anything that I say, <laughs> just as a, as a disclaimer. But I, I would think that a couple of the interesting people that I, I do value would be Ben Hunt. He is, you can find him on Twitter. He's a, he's, he comes from an economist type perspective, so I would look at him. And then for someone that I disagree with quite a lot, but I absolutely enjoy for their take on the world is um, David Pierce. He's Webmaster Dave on Twitter. And he is a philosopher, transhumanist. And I think that he's changed, he's actually managed to change my mind about a few things, which not everyone is able to do. So <laughs> I'll give him a look too, just for two very different, diverse perspectives on what's going on in the world. In terms of 
the whole side of features, I really came out of features from a trend perspective. So it's just kind of a rabbit hole. So I went from sort of marketing to marketing economic products, which got me into economics, into sort of trend analysis, which is understanding consumers and business trends. And from looking at what's going on today, which is a trend, it's quite a small jump to go into what's going to happen next. And luckily, no one can prove you wrong because the whole point of futurism is actually to change the future rather than to predict it. So I'll leave you with that thought. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, I think it's uh, no coincidence that um, the most interesting people in the world seem to have this this pattern of, of having done very many things and having a very non-traditional path. Yeah, you're a prime example of that. And it's been a, a fascinating conversation. Uh, just on a sort of more practical matter, where can people find you online? I know you've, uh, you've already mentioned your Twitter already and your website came up. So I don't know what you recommend is the best place for people to get in touch, to follow updates from you and uh, any final closing thoughts from you, Bronwyn. Okay, great. So if you're looking at more for sort of the, the more basic trend stuff or have a look at flux.trends.com we are always publishing new new interesting things about what's going on in the world if you're looking for more of the futurism stuff definitely have a look at my website what the future now i don't update it all the time but i only put things on that are of interest to me so if, it's in, if you find me interesting you'll find more interesting stuff there otherwise if you want to actually chat twitter is definitely the best place i am at Bronwyn williams very basic i was quite an early adopter to that platform back in the day fantastic it's, a, it's been an incredible conversation, uh, lots of food for thought there on the whole topic of UBI, on the future, on moving away from bloated paternalistic governance and into a more decentralized system that takes back agency. A lot of fantastic ideas. I'm sure uh, Jared agrees on all of this. Yeah, no, it was great. And we really appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with us. Potentially, we have to line up another one for the future for a part two. But thanks, Bronwyn. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Bits of a Tangent. If you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us and share your thoughts. You can email us at podtangent at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter or Instagram through the handle at podtangent. For more information about us, our backgrounds and other projects we're involved in, visit our website at podtangent.com. There you can also find full show notes, which have links to all the great content discussed in the episode, as mentioned in the introduction, we occasionally add bonus content related to the episode or just mention favorite books, organizations, and other esoteric internet stuff. If you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes or whatever app you get your podcasts from. This lets them know that we're worth listening to and helps new people discover the ideas we discuss. The best way to hear about future episodes is to subscribe to us in your podcast app and, if you're so inclined, to enable notifications. That way you'll know when we've released something new, which is generally about once a week. Lastly, if you know someone who you suspect might enjoy the kinds of things we talk about here, consider sharing an episode with them. It really is the only way a podcast can grow authentically. We both love having these discussions and relish the opportunity to share ideas with like-minded people around the world. So your support and listenership are sincerely appreciated. Until next time.